Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagra Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. U.S. inflation hit a nearly 40-year high at 6.8% as worries mount that the new Omicron wave of COVID could prove deadly, especially for the unvaccinated. Since the start of the pandemic, at least 797,000 Americans and 5.3 million worldwide have died because of the pandemic. National leaders are struggling with new COVID containment measures like limited lockdowns, mask and vaccine mandates. This as consumers in America and abroad who were expected to travel this holiday season appear to be changing their plans. All that means implications for airlines, aircraft makers, hotels, restaurants, and more, but also for governments that have borrowed heavily during the pandemic, thereby contributing to an inflation problem, too much money chasing too few goods. The House passed its version of the National Defense Authorization Act as the Senate takes up the measure, more 787 delays, and after a long competition, Helsinki picked the F-35 Lightning II fighter to replace its aging F-18s with implications for Saab's Gripen, the second time the Swedish maker has failed to convince its neighbor to buy a new fighter. Joining us as they do every week to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent London research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Abalafia of the Teal Group Consultancy here in Washington, D.C. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much for having us, Vago. Always great to be on, Vago. Thanks. Uh, exactly. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be Sunday unless the the three of us, uh, the the musk, musketeers, were all uh, together talking about the world's uh, woes uh, and opportunities. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Ron, start us off right. Uh, another week where inflation loomed large, COVID loomed large, uh, and we're already seeing travel implications, right? I mean, you guys are tracking this really, really closely through credit card data. Kind of walk, walk us through what the week on the street was like for the group uh, and, and what this news that we're seeing will mean, because folks are talking about end product costs going up 10 to 15% uh, in our sector, uh, which, is, which is real price growth, right? Yeah, there's a multiple factors this week. Um, you know, we're we're coming off the the week last week where the CAAC in China uh, put out an airworthiness directive on the 737. You know, that was seen as a positive broadly for the group because of the impact on the 73. Uh, but then also this week it came out that it looks like um, 787s won't start deliveries again, maybe until April at the earliest. To, to quote uh, some stuff in the press. Uh, and American Airlines. So, so, so we'll see. I mean, that was real crosswinds for the sector. Um, if you look at how the group performed, the S&P was up uh, about a little over three and a half percent on the week. Um, and that's, that's largely how the group did. It was you know, bouncing all over the place. You know, Boeing was up and then down and all over uh, as an indicator of the group. But you know, broadly, uh, that was the case. The, the star for the week was Raytheon Technologies. They were up uh, uh, almost six and a half percent, doubling the performance of the market. Um, you know, we're moving into that time of the year where there's investors starting to pull back. You know, because of the holiday season, we're getting into end of year. Nobody wants to blow up their books at this this point, so there's a little more more caution. People are starting to think about positioning for next year. If they're not already set for that, they're just. I would be really surprised to see any any major moves in investors' books this time of year because they don't want to mess up um, what's going on. 
Uh, on the inflation front, yeah, the 6.8% uh, print came out. That was the highest in, as you mentioned, a very, very long time. Uh, if you look at what happened with interest rates, they came off a bit, but not a ton. We're still hovering around 1.5%. Um, and there's this tension in the market, you know, is it, you know, how temporal is it? Is it not? Is it going to be a problem? Is it not? What's it mean for the Fed? We're not sure. Um, so there's a lot of back and forth uh, on that. Um, and I think it really depends on how persistent these uh, inflationary prints become. And then as you highlighted, kind of across the board, across sectors, you name it, um, you know, we're seeing supply chain issues, inflationary pressures, and not just, you know, labor uh, uh uh, inflation, but you know raw material inflation, supply chain inflation, and just difficulties you know moving moving things and shipping things around, um, and that's uh, to be frank one of the things I worry about as we go into next year as the industry ramps you know you, you know, with fighter aircraft at very high levels, uh, re ramping narrow bodies um, and the business jet industry trying to ramp, um, there'll be a lot of pressure on a supply chain that in many ways at this point is is kind of fragile. So so we'll see what happens, but right. I think that's the week in a nutshell. Um, and and obviously, right, a lot of pressure on the Fed because the Fed has uh, the Fed has said we're going to, um, you know, we're going to ease out of buybacks and and things like that. Uh, right. I mean, they can't change. They can't shift gears that quickly. Right. I mean, they have to sort of do it the way they said they they do it. We're going to tail out uh, the buyback of assets before we transition to inflation fighting measures. Otherwise, the, the street's going to respond. Neg- the street's already responding negatively. Right. Every time the Fed makes an utterance that it, it's going to accelerate. Uh, easing measures. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, if the Fed were to you know move more um, dramatically or more you know, quicker than people are expecting, you'd see I, you would see that reflected in markets. That said, however, I would still say there's a debate on the street on how serious inflation is. Um, I, I think the street broadly, when the Fed was saying, "Hey," or, and multiple people were saying, "Hey," you know, this inflation is just uh, temporary. I, I think. You know, on the street, people were saying, well, that, that's not possible. Like, it's going to be you know, more persistent than people think. And, and my sense is there's some positioning for that already. We'll see ultimately. But um, I think that's where things are. Um, Sash, uh, talk to us a little bit about Omicron, where it's going, uh, travel over on your side of uh, the pond, uh, given, you know, and, and let, let's not even get to the Christmas party uh, and, and what the fate of the prime minister is going to be, because I, I think that... Um, you know, clearly there's a lot of frustration uh, building uh, about uh, the, the level of the prime minister's candor, but maybe that's a different uh, conversation uh, to be had, unless you think one of these no confidence votes is actually going to, you know, succeed. Uh, walk us through where we stand on, on the travel forecast uh, for a holiday season in Europe that was supposed to be more robust than what we've seen in, in the, it's certainly in the last sort of year and a half or so. Yeah, sure. Um, look, last question first. It won't. Uh, succeed unless um, things get a lot worse. Watch out. There's a by-election uh, in a, a, an incredibly safe Conservative Party seat or Conservative Party held seat uh, coming up this week. Were they to lose that, most likely to the uh, one of the opposition parties, the Liberal Democrats, that would raise the risk of a no-confidence vote. Uh, or not a no-confidence vote. It, it, it would effectively be an internal Conservative Party vote uh, against Boris Johnson. And then things start to get very interesting. But the Conservative Party typically takes, you know, uh, many, many, many months up to two years before it finally manages to uh, e- eject a leader, although it's a massively more efficient party at that than any other party in British politics. Uh, so uh, I think there's still a long game to be played there. Um, anyway, back to our space in the fence. Um, Omicron. Um, 
the effect is being felt so far in bookings rather than in travel. So actually, if you look at uh, travel, both in Europe and in uh, and globally, there's not a lot of evidence you know, in the year in the week rather just gone of the effect of Omicron on uh, travel. Uh, US tra- uh, traffic's coming down. That's post-Thanksgiving effects. That always happens. European traffic's coming down. That's a seasonal thing. Um, uh, you know, that's coming down after the summer holidays and before the uh, the winter uh, sun season, which typically uh, starts uh, around Christmas and then uh, in, in, into the new year. Um, but there is anecdotal uh, comments from airlines that they're starting to see bookings uh, uh, dry up or, or get deferred or so forth. And given that air travel, certainly here in Europe, is just getting harder to, or rather more expensive to do, because now you're, uh, anytime you travel, the cost of that trip is not actually about the ticket price. It's about the ticket price plus the sheer number of tests you have to take. Uh, and in some cases, for example, you want to go skiing in France, you have to take a test every single day and you have to pay for it every day. And it's, it's about somewhere between 30 and 40 euros, depending on the resort you go to. Um, so that becomes a very, you know, a, an unforeseen, a very significant part of your total uh, trip cost in a way that it wasn't, uh, you know, before Omicron uh, reared its, its ugly head. And I suspect, but I mean, this is pure conjecture at this stage, that what we'll see is that the, the winter season, such as it is, is much more depressed than people expect. And that we start getting a sort of rolling process of deferrals uh, as uh, people who've already booked realise that, uh, the trip they want to make sometime in Q1 is just going to be harder, less convenient, um, more expensive uh, than they expected. And I think this is, you know, this is going to be something that is clearly going to develop over uh, at least the next sort of eight weeks or so. Um, Richard, um, how do you see this uh, impacting, right, um, your, uh, your your friend and, and collaborator, uh, collaborator uh, Kevin Michaels of uh, Aerodynamic Advisory, uh, has talked about this. In, in fact, Ron, uh, you and I have been on a couple of panels uh, for the Pacific Northwest Aerospace Alliance. We're all going to be heading out there in February uh, for the big conference, and Kevin joins us for that discussion. You know, I was just in the in the high desert uh, in El Mirage, where we visited with General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, uh, our strategy sponsor. Uh, but they were unveiling their Mojave uh, aircraft, and and we were at you know a facility that had hundreds uh, of jetliners that were parked, and and some of them looked like they were being worked on to put them back in service. Right? What what are, what are the implications of this? Uh, and does this change any of the forecasts that you've had, either on new aircraft deliveries or uh, bringing uh, older airplanes back online? You know, I, I don't think so. Uh, there are a number of things at play. You know, first of all, yes, uh, anecdotally, things are down because of Omicron. But, you know, no one said this would be a smooth ride up. And we have the data from Delta. You know, all the, the data of the impact of Delta is now quite clear in the rearview mirror. And sure enough, there's a little fish hook on the recovery. Uh, but it doesn't affect the long-term uh, trajectory here. Uh, things are still heading up. I have no doubt that there will be a similar fish hook resulting from Omicron and then it'll go away and we'll continue uh, going up. Um, you know, at, I, I, it hasn't impacted our expectations that we're going to get back to the 2019 peak sometime in early 2023. 
could it be delayed? Sure. There are any number of factors that could delay that, but I don't think it's the current situation. I think if anything, I'm a little more concerned, uh, you know, Ron is starting to make a fair amount of sense to me <laughs> when he talks about inflation. Uh, you know, it, I always thought I was always on team transitory, but I'm starting to see it his way. And, um, you know, this could, of course, have impacts in terms of a big impact in terms of, uh, well, interest rates. And, you know, the most important metric right now, I think, is a continuation of the rather wonderful gap between the cost of capital and the cost of fuel, where fuel is, you know, in the 80 bucket barrel range. So everyone wants new jets. And of course, the cost of capital has been consistently linked with the cost of dirt. So financing is cheap. But if that changes, if interest rates do need to rise considerably um, beyond, you know, three or four uh, percent wholesale federal fund effective, that's going to be a, a major problem. I, I think it's actually a bigger possible derailer uh, of the upward ramp in deliveries than, than, than traffic looks likely to be right now. Um, another issue, of course, is that, you know, frankly, you still have supply constraints, not just in the supply chain, but also at Boeing. You know, there are a lot of people who want uh, a 787 and, and, and even a Max, and, and, and they're just not able to get them for whatever reason. I think this is primarily a 787 thing, but you know, it's, it's pretty clear that a lot of the recovery we're going to see this year is for aircraft that will be delivered, but were already built last year, hundreds of 737s and scores, maybe 100 787s. And that's going to make things look a little bit better, at least on the deliveries front, than they really are from a manufacturing activity standpoint. Right. Um, well, look, I mean, right, we're, I, th- I think, in a broader perfect storm, right? Wages had been, uh, uh, you know, sort of artificially suppressed for a long time. Uh, you know, quantities and products were shrinking. Uh, we now have, you know, millions of people who've left the workforce uh, because they've they've concluded that they want to enjoy their lives or they may have enough money to be able to to do that, uh, right? Um, I mean, the, I think there were a lot of, you know, uh, Mike Petters joined us last week, the president and CEO of Huntington Ingalls Industries, and and gave one of the more compelling sort of how work has changed, right? People don't identify as such with their jobs. Jobs are what they do. Um, and, you know, once upon a time, you know, he said when he was a young shipbuilder and, and you announced the, you know, there were overtime hours to be had, people would snap them up right away. And, and he said, people just aren't doing that now. They want a better work-life balance, uh, for, for example, right? So I think we're in the midst of a whole bunch of dynamic factors that are going on. And, and yeah, I mean, governments have spent countless trillions of dollars uh, in uh, all manner of stimulus. And you can debate whether or not the right people ended up getting it or not. But but effectively, right, a, a lot of money is, 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 is chasing too few goods. Ron, uh, you know, and, and quickly, uh, Sash, in, in terms of sort of recovery staying on track, I mean, are, are you are you still confident or could Omicron? I mean, some some of the stories about what the potential impact of Omicron, right? I mean, there are some news reports that, that Britain could lose up to 75,000 people. That's that's a big impact um, at, at the hands potentially of Omicron. Um, what's, what's, what's your guys' analysis telling us about where this is likely to go and, and whether you know, we should still be confident that we're gonna be bouncing back or, or are we gonna go into another trough and, and you know, with, with government's ability to spend even more money right somewhat compromised at this point yeah i mean i think it's it's a it's a 
know, it's a game of fits and starts. Um, you know, clearly things are moving in the right direction. Um, and, and as a as a society, as a country, as a world, in 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 many countries, most countries, um, you know, some doing it differently than others, are figuring out how to live with this, live around it, work with it. Um, our forecast uh, assumed or predicated on there would be other variants that came along, right? So that's right. in our forecast. Um, and right now we're tracking to, you know, uh, within, you know, how can I say it, the box of what we thought could happen. Um, and, you know, just to reiterate, you know, we're looking for air traffic to get back to 2019 levels at some point in 2023 and on an annual basis in 2024. Um, who knows if we'll be right, but so far we're comfortable with that. Uh, and, and I'm with Richard hundred percent. I mean, this, this, uh, this latest variant, um, you know, is going to cause its issues uh, clearly um it you know i think the world trying to figure out exactly how serious it could be um in some accounts like you mentioned it could be pretty darn serious um but we've been with this for a while and, and i think we're figuring out how to to march forward um and you know that so that's that's our assumption that'll be fits and starts and ups and downs and uh, in the end i think it's just as simple as you know two-thirds of global air traffic is international it crosses borders and that's where these different variants make things more complicated. Um, so until the world figures out, uh, the world aviation community figures out a very consistent way to, to handle cross-border COVID, um, because right now, as you all know, it's a different, different countries, everybody's doing things differently. Um, kind of once the world figures out how to sort of do this maybe broadly the same way, and, and, and I'm not saying I know how the right best way to do that is, but if there's a set of rules that everybody can play by, um, that would probably help things along. But, you know, my, my hope in our forecast assumes that these continue, but the seriousness of them and how we deal with them each time we get better at it. Um, yeah, but I mean, the unfortunate part of that is, right, we, we haven't gotten better at it. Um, you're right. Each, each time we say like, well, this time uh, we're going to coordinate a little bit more. I, I think there has been more information sharing on Omicron. We saw maybe a little bit more on Delta than we had on preceding variants. But we, we don't yet have this sort of global approach, standard response. Um, and, and instead it's, you know, gets, you know, right. I mean, it's the craziness about wearing a mask, where you wear a mask, where you don't wear a mask, you know, what wearing a mask tells other people about you. Oh, look how cool I am in an airport that I don't wear a mask, right? I'm, I'm messaging that way. As opposed to just being like, "Hey, wear your mask, get your shot, get your booster shot. Let's 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 put this in the rearview mirror, um, and and get on with it." I mean, we're up almost to eight hundred thousand American fatalities. But but I would I would just add, and that's all true. But my kids are going to school. I've got you know a kid in you know, college like you do, and you know their college numbers are actually been very low, and he's doing classes live. Um, you know, I went to a diner today in my town, and I mean, you know, life is more normal today than it was a year ago. Uh, and, and that seems to be the trend we're on. And right. not that it's going to be perfect and not that people, you know, it's still a pandemic, right? It's not endemic yet. It's a pandemic. But it, it seems to be that we're, you know, muddling along, figuring our way through it. Um, right. But you're in an area, uh, Ron, where, right, vaccinations are high. Uh, your kids get tested in school. They had to be vaccinated before they went back to school. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I agree with you. Life is getting much more normal. I'm traveling. You're traveling. We're all starting to travel more and more and go out more and, and eat in a more, you know, and do things in a more relaxed fashion. 
but I'm just saying that there are still parts of the country and parts of the world where, you know, un- unfortunately, the pandemic is is going to keep uh, going. Sash, I want to I want to go to you in terms of your estimate on whether or not we should be, you know, r- whether there's any change. You heard from Richard and you heard from Ron about your travel estimate. You know, before we go on to the defense portion of the conversation, I wanted to get your take on that as well. Uh, I, I I just heard um, Ron there and. That doesn't accord with our sort of feeling here in Europe. I would say in Europe, things are going backwards again. Uh, and, you know, we're thinking quite hard about whether, we, you know, about whether we go out. We're testing every single time, uh, uh, you know, before any uh, major uh, events or gathering. And I think travel has just got a whole lot harder uh, than it was three months ago, four months ago. Uh, I think, you know, Europe, Europe definitely feels like it's going backwards compared to the um, uh, you know, the picture that Ron was painting just now. And, and what does that mean for bringing aircraft back into service, new orders and, and, and like? I mean, Europe, you're right, I mean, it's well, a smaller market than the United States and, uh, and, and China, but it's still a very, very important market. Um, and look, it, I, I mean, it, it means that long haul is dead, probably for another two, three quarters. Um, you know, nobody, it's really hard to do long haul. And short haul is going to disappoint. So, uh, I mean, orders, you know, anybody ordering now, uh, because let's face it, the only people who are ordering are ordering Airbuses. And you can't get an Airbus before 2025, 2026 anyway. So they're taking a much longer term view. This doesn't, but um, in terms of do you bring aircraft back? Do you do the next major overhaul? Uh, or do you play around with sort of green time on engines? Um, airlines are going to be very, very cautious going through the winter as to the sort of financial commitments they make. Uh, on uh, overhaul and bringing aircraft back, yeah, not not worth it. If you've got new aircraft in your fleet, you don't want to bring back older aircraft that have got worse economics. You might as well keep on flying the new stuff, which is still under warranty. Um, which is uh, which is fascinating that this is happening when it's happening because uh, airlines were starting to bring A380s and 747s back, right? For those uh, you know, real big airplane fans who you know felt cheated and they you know they wanted to get one more flight on these uh, you know grand queens of the sky, um, their their return to service is could not be more badly timed, right? Yeah, I tell you, what, if you can find me an airline that's bringing back a 747 in, in passenger service, I will still try to, to, to uh, look that schedule up and see if I can get a flight on it because those are rare as hen's teeth now. But yeah, A380s. A380s are, is is a deeply niche aircraft. I mean, British Airways may well slightly regret the, the fairly bullish comments they were making on the aircraft uh, a, a couple of weeks ago. And a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control. Correct me if I'm wrong, Richard, um, any 747s coming back? I thought Lufthansa was going to bring them back, or am I mistaken about that? Well, no, I mean, they're just a rarity because they're one of the very few carriers in the world that actually purchased the passenger version of the Dash 8. So those are really new airplanes. Uh, I'm not aware, certainly, of anyone who's bringing back any pre-Dash 8 passenger, you know, 400 ERs or something. Okay. All right. Great. Um, I I just uh, just just was just just was doing a sanity check. Um, Let me give you, Sash, another bite at the apple, because uh, obviously uh, the big story or maybe the expected story. Right. Uh, Finland's uh, decision. We knew that Helsinki was uh, leaning towards the F-35. 
um, in in the final strokes, right? A, a number of aircraft were competing uh, for the order, including the Rafale, including uh, the the Gripen uh, E. Um, this is the second time Saab has lost, obviously, with the early model uh, Gripen. The airplane was designed not just for Swedish use, but to have uh, export uh, traction. Um, back then, the United States told uh, Helsinki, hey, if you want to get the AMRAAM, you'd better buy the F-18. They bought the F-18. Uh, very happy with their U.S. experience. Now we're going with the F-35. More broadly, what does this mean for Saab in, in particular? Uh, because uh, the, the company has a terrific product, uh, has a reputation for making extraordinarily good products, uh, succeeded in Brazil, succeeded in Switzerland. Switzerland was undone, obviously, because by a conjoined campaign by Dassault and Eurofighter to get another competition. And, and, and ultimately... Uh, and, and sadly for Europe, right, no European airplane ended up winning it again, right? So be, be careful what you wish for. Uh, you know, at, at least with a Gripen, it would have been a European product. Well, walk us through what this means, particularly for Saab, a company that's been batting in that first rung, whether in developing and building submarines uh, or fighters. And they haven't been selling submarines and they haven't been selling a lot of fighters, but the French have been. Talk, talk to us about what this decision means and what this decision means for a, a company that that you know has has a lot of fans by being a bit of an underdog against far far bigger competitors. I think that Gripen was a um, uh, you know was not a front runner in Sweden. Sorry, in Finland, except for the fact that they were offering a, a pretty differentiated package. They were offering Gripen Plus Global Eye. The, uh, the Saab uh, airborne early warning uh, aircraft. And Globalize is an incredibly capable aircraft and put Globalize into the mix and you really do um, greatly strengthen your air defense capability, almost whatever fighter uh, you use. And, and Saab very clearly said, we're offering Gripen and Globalize, not just uh, Gripen uh, for, for this particular contest. But I think as far as Finland is concerned, two issues, very hard to overcome uh, an incumbent country, the US, uh, although this has been a, I think it's a huge blow for Boeing. I mean, where, you know, where the F-18 is, is dying in front of our eyes at the moment. Um, and, you know, the F-18 will effectively have lost three incumbencies this year, uh, Switzerland, Finland, and, uh, uh, and Canada. Um, from Saab's point of view, it's important to put Gripen into perspective. Saab's aeronautics business, and remember that also includes their very, very big exposure on the T-7A, uh, program in the US. The Saab's aeronautics pro, uh, business at the moment is just under 30% of revenues and about 25% of profits. Look four years out and it's about 25% of each. So it's not it's not the majority of the business, nowhere near, and it's actually growing slower than the rest of the business. What's growing faster? The ground combat business, they are incredibly good at, at missiles and anti-tank uh, direct fire weapons. Carl Gustav, um, uh, being the major one, but also AT4 uh, um, and more. And they're very, very good at radars. Global Eye being their airborne early warning capability, but giraffe in every single conceivable form of, of air defense. And those are the businesses that are actually going faster at the moment. I think from Saab's point of view, yeah, I mean, they're clearly disappointed. Um, but I think that it's very, very hard to beat the F-35 at a time when Russia is about to uh, invade Ukraine and might even do something really stupid in the Baltic states as well. 
Finland needs all of the support from the US it can get. And the way you do that is by buying F-35s. Also, if you actually want a deterrent capability against Russia, there is nothing that deters more than the ability of an F-35 to hit St. Petersburg and possibly even Moscow with standoff uh, munitions. And I think that the, the, the Finns, in, in the current horrible uh, geopolitical environment of uh, Eastern and Northeastern Europe, they went for the, the, the rational thing, which is the insurance policy tied close into the US and the deterrent capability of being able to put you know, very important parts of Russia um, at, uh, at threat in a way that no other aircraft system could do. I think this is about Saab. I think this is about Putin, Ukraine, uh, and the Baltic states. Um, as we were uh, preparing for this, and uh, and I hope our, our audience recognizes, uh, Sash is kind enough to join us uh, from uh, from a car, uh, and and so that that slight change uh, everybody was hearing was uh, him uh, jumping uh, among cell towers uh, in yeah. somewhere in the middle of southern uh, England or or wherever you are. I'm I'm just taking a guess. Yeah, that's that's pretty close. That's close enough, anyway. <laughs> close enough for an American sitting in Washington. Um, uh, Richard, you know, one of the things we we discussed as we were preparing for the program is, you know, how Vladimir Putin is is effectively the helping Lockheed and, and U.S. industry score. Um, do you think? And and maybe this was a question to ask uh, as Sash, but he had two bites of the apple, and I, I want to move on to you. Do you think that this accelerates or expands the role? that Saab plays in the Tempest program at this point, right? I mean, if, if you're sitting in Linköping uh, and Stockholm, does this, do you think, change your strategy for your aircraft arm? Or do you continue, or do you think that there is still good prospects for uh, grip and ease out there with heritage operators, whether it's South Africa, whether it's Hungary, uh, Thailand, or anybody else? Well, you know, there are very few 50-year uh, combat aircraft programs, you know, it might be, well, I mean, yes, the F-15 and F-16, um, but very few others. Uh, Grip and, you know, two things about it, of course, the EF models are the extension of the ASB. So are, is this thing really going to be built beyond the mid-2030s? No, it, it, it won't. And does Sweden have the defense budget to build its own uh, indigenous fighter after the Gripen, the answer, of course, it doesn't. You know, the Gripen was the last of the good old days. They had the Drakken, the Vegan, and now the Gripen. That's the end of it. So I, I think the base assumption has always been that the future is with more of a pan-European approach. And of course, it fits in with Swedish foreign policy. So much of the fighter market depends upon, you know, foreign policy considerations. And it's pretty clear that uh, any thought of Sweden tacking to neutrality, that's, you know, it's, it's a NATO country and, and anything but name only. Uh, and, and also, you know, frankly, the missions and roles, the concept of the, the minimum good air sovereignty fighter, that's, that maybe was always a bit oversold in terms of its appeal. You know, it always had a certain cost effectiveness aspect, but in this day and age, you know, I think, I think Sash is right. You know, so much about the combat aircraft model is trending towards conventional deterrence. Like it's not just that we're patrolling our airspace. It's that if you attack us, you're going to get a really bloody nose. And you're seeing this in many different markets and in, in, in Taiwan, it takes the form of, a form of missiles rather than fighters, but you know, either way, it, it's the, I guess the purpose here and the Gripen isn't really a great way to give someone a bloody nose. It's a great way of keeping your airspace whole. It's a great way of, you know, having, you know, control over 
your own air power, your own air battle. But beyond that, you're not going to make anybody nervous with it. So I, I think the future for them is indeed some kind of role in Tempest or another pan-European program. Ron, um, how do you see this uh, unfolding? Um, and and more importantly, what you know to follow up on what Sash said, right? What are the implications for for Boeing? I mean, although I do have to point out, right, that um, that Boeing got quite a quite a nice uh, chunk of uh, F eighteen rework business, uh, right? Because uh, obviously there are lots of airplanes in Navy inventory that are going to stay in inventory for some time. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what jumps out at me uh, most importantly, um, at least from my little view on the world, is um, the impact on Boeing. Um, you know, having, um, you know, not have the opportunity in Canada and then not have the opportunity in Finland. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a clearly a blow to the program. But, you know, never, never count these things down and out completely, right? I mean, we're still doing F-15s, right? And, the F-15 is about as old as me. So, um, you know, these, these programs can be around for quite some time. So I think it's a little early to you know, call the F-18 F yeah, gone. Um, but, you know, they're clearly, clearly blows to the program. There are things that would support Boeing's defense business. And I think arguably, if you look at Boeing defense and you compare it to some of its peers on the margin, it's probably not as well positioned as, as some of the other ones. Um, so these would have been, been welcome. Um, as for as for Saab, I mean they they have you know a uh, really great aircraft. Um, it's just you know finding the right markets in the right place in the right time. Sometimes it's not always the maybe the best machine that wins, but there's always other political considerations, right? So, um, let me uh, ask you well, what other defense news sort of moved the needle for you uh, over the uh, course of this last week? Well, of course, you know the the, the House uh, and you know their their, you know, passage of the NDAA. I mean, how, how do we frame that? Like, here, can we, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, so yeah. the House uh, passed the National Defense Authorization Act, and the Senate is uh, is is taking it up, and all eyes are on what's going to be next. Yeah. So I mean, the seven hundred and forty billion um, number uh, is, is is welcome, right? I mean, that's a little over five percent growth um, year on year. Um, now, ultimately, we'll see where inflation plays out. Uh, but that's definitely you know a, a higher number than I think the markets were expecting a year ago, uh, and my expectation is as we go into next year we'll see similar growth. Um, probably year on year the budgets start out you know the, the, the ask from the Biden administrations probably f flat but adjusted for inflation. So that starting point when everything's adjusted is probably where this year ended ballpark for different reasons, but that's where we where it starts. And then you go through the whole plus up cycle in Congress, which during an election year, you know, by you know most accounts, will probably be pretty generous, maybe a little more generous than this year. Uh, time is uh, running short, uh, so we're going to go into a little bit of a lightning round. Uh, Sash, uh, Germany has a new chancellor for the first time in a um, what 16 years of Angela Merkel's uh, reign. Olaf Scholz uh, with Annalena Baerbock uh, as foreign minister. Any change in the vector of German defense in the wake of this government change, right? I mean, Germany was accused of not spending enough as it was under Merkel, who had made all manner of promises, including signed the Newport Pledge uh, in 2014. And, and yet German defense spending has been going up, but not going up as fast as it needs to go up 
uh, right? Or rather, maybe we should say Germany is spending a lot of money on defense. Maybe it's not moving the needle as sharply as it needs to move them. Anyway, what's what's I, what's your I, sense about what this new administration means? Uh, I'm just asto- I'm just astonished. I'm just astonished <laughs> that we're getting in Germany but not spending uh, enough on defense. If Germany spends as much on defense as everybody wants it to, it's going to spend as much as the UK and France combined, and that will <laughs> that's going to make it a very very disruptive. Plan. Uh, player in European defence. The French will not like that. The British will not like that. And they will start to get to the stage because, you know, once Germany is spending 70, 80 billion, 90 billion euros a year, you know, it'll get to the stage where they pull the tune for everybody else. So be very careful what you, what you ask for in terms of German defence spending. I think the Germans are spending, they're spending a ton on defence. They've increased their defence budget every single year. They are starting to become a serious defense player, defense leader, uh, in particularly in Central Europe, and then the stuff that matters, which is heavy armor, which is the stuff that deters uh, the Russians in, in, in that area. Um, and then they're providing a capability and a leadership that uh, the UK is just technically incapable of at the moment, and the French are too far away to do. And the French don't really do heavy armor uh, the way that it's, it's perceived in Central Europe. I, you know, I, I, I think the Germans are spending enough the issue is going to be where they spend it uh, and specifically which countries they spend it. And I think that the, um, the Schultz administration with the, uh, the uh, Free Democrats, who are very, very in favour of the German defence industry rather than buying from abroad, I think you'll see a much greater focus uh, there. Uh, and that's going to be good for, you know, clearly going to be good. If you're a manufacturer of, of uh, tanks, uh, U-boats, destroyers, uh, combat aircraft, helicopters, that's going to be great for German industry. It's going to make Germany very, very slim pickings for uh, US and other countries uh, that, that want to export um, uh, in, into Germany overall. But I think you know, German policies don't change as much with changes of administration as people think. First of all, because German governments are uh, coalitions. And, you know, the, uh, Schultz was, after all, with his um, uh, Social Democrat Party, a member of uh, Angela Merkel's coalition for the last 16 years anyway. Um, so I, yeah, I don't think we're going to see radical changes, but where we do, it's going to be that the both the uh, Free Democrats and the uh, Greens are much more hawkish on Russia than Angela Merkel was. Um, and uh, you know that, I think, will make them uh, probably much more focused on uh, issues like the Nord Stream uh, pipeline and where uh, or, you know, how the Germans decide to uh, provide deterrence uh, across the whole of the conventional space uh, in Europe. And it uh, changes. Does it change the SCAF dynamic at all as as Germany becomes more assertive and, and spends more money? I think what change, I mean, yes, it does. And that's going to cause a loss of stress in France, in my view. But actually, I think the thing that is changing the SCAF dynamic um, and we, we need should come back to this some other time, is that uh, France, having won the 80 aircraft Rafale order from the United Arab Emirates, I think there are, you know, France is starting to think if Germany kicks up, if Germany, you know, is too assertive in terms of, uh, 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 you know, in, in terms of SCAF and work shares and leadership and so forth, I think there are people in France who are starting to think, hey, we, could, we can go this alone. We, we can produce, we France, we Dassault, can produce a state-of-the-art five-and-a-half-generation combat aircraft. Um, and 
if we do it on our own, then we can export the hell out of it and we can get the United Arab Emirates to co-invest to actually help us get there. Uh, no other nation in Europe is able to do that. So I think, paradoxically, the destabilizing impact in SCAF comes from the fact that, you know, France has now got a Rafale order book well into the 2030s, and they've got the customer they always wanted for Rafale, and they can see their ability then to sell uh, straight into SCAF. Uh, Richard, any uh, last thoughts as we part for the week? Yeah, a bunch of comments on the combat aircraft market, and uh, please cut me off if I go too long. <laughs> yeah, on the combat aircraft market, you know, it's... Um, going to be really interesting with the German government and their, whether they continue the, the nuclear mission. If they don't, and they don't buy Super Hornets and Growlers, then the current uh, addition of another dozen Super Hornets uh, in, the, in the NDAA is effectively a bridge to nowhere, you know, because if, if the Germans don't do it at this point, then the Super Hornet dies. So it's all about the new government and nukes. The other thing I'd point out is that at this point, the F-35 order book is way above the 156 a year that production is capped at by Lockheed Martin. And they haven't provided guidance on what they're doing or whether they're doing anything to uh, alleviate those issues and get the numbers north of that 156. So that's one of the bis biggest mysteries. You know, the, the natural peak, given what's now on the books or about to be on the books, is in the 170s or 180 range. So we're a little uncertain about the supply con constraint aspect of the combat aircraft market. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you guys on the program and already looking forward to the conversation next week. In the meantime, hope you guys have a great week. Thanks a lot. Great to be here, Vago. Wouldn't be a weekend without it. <laughs> yeah, thanks very much indeed, Vago. Cheers. Yeah, always great to be on, Vago. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.